Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Right back to Hebrews chapter 10, where we were just a minute ago. The passage that we studied last Sunday, uh, the first 18 verses of chapter 10, they brought to a close the main teaching section of the book of Hebrews that we've been in for for quite a while. Uh, We have so far learned of the superiority of our Savior Jesus Christ and the superiority of the new covenant that God has made with all of those who will place their trust in who Jesus is for us and what he has done for us on that cross and in that empty tomb. And so now verses 19 through 25, they are the practical application of what's been about a six plus chapter long doctrinal teaching. And uh, over the past weeks, we've been given a what I would call a significant dose of vitally important doctrine. And this morning in verses 19 to 25, God is going to tell us here now what that doctrine demands, what it means for us. And it's, it's so awesome that this passage even has application for our celebrating the Lord's Supper. I love it when God works things out like that. Before we study it verse by verse, let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask you to speak to us through it. Um, that your Holy Spirit, who is present, living inside every follower of Jesus Christ, everyone who's trusted in him as their Savior, that he would have unobstructed uh, ministry in illuminating the truth of your word to us. We thank you for the doctrine that we've learned over the past couple of months as we've walked through what at times is a difficult to understand uh, section of Hebrews. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has revealed that truth to us. And now as you begin um, to tell us what that means, what you're asking of us based on all that doctrine, I pray that we would submit to you, that we would obey your Holy Spirit's moving We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're given three demands in these verses that all that doctrine that we've been learning about, three demands here. The first one is let us draw near. Verses 19 to 22, we we actually don't find that demand until verse 22. First, we get a brief summary of the doctrine that God has laid out in the previous six or so chapters. Verse 19 begins all of this by explaining to the Christian what we have In our relationship with God through faith in Jesus, it says, having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So we have a boldness in our ability to approach God, a boldness to be in personal relationship with God. That's a a term that we use. Um, And I think sometimes we don't really consider or meditate on all that it means to be in a personal relationship with the God of the universe, with the almighty, omnipotent, sovereign. 
We have a boldness to be in relationship and to approach at any point in time uh, this God, the God who created us, sustained us, and saved us. Now, if you're like me, you might not feel very bold at times. Uh, but we need to let the truth of Scripture here, the, the facts, override any feelings that we might have otherwise. If our ability to approach God, if, if our ability to be in personal relationship with God, if our ability to enjoy his presence, if that were up to us or what we have done or what we haven't done, well, we ought not feel any kind of boldness. Uh, instead, I think we should be a lot like Isaiah was back in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember that passage when he threw a vision or was transported to the very throne room of God? Uh, and he saw God in all of his majestic holiness. And what was Isaiah's response? Bowing, <laughs> crying out, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have now seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Basically, Isaiah is saying, I do not belong here, and I'm pretty uncomfortable being here. And Christian, while we ought to never lose our sense of the majestic holiness of God, while we ought never lose our sense of awe and wonder at what God's word calls the fear of the Lord, a joyful submission to his will, we, we do not, as followers of Jesus, we do not need to respond like Isaiah did there. Because of this doctrine right here, beginning in verse 19, because of our basis for approaching God the Father. Being in personal relationship and enjoying his presence, it is not in us or in anything about us. The basis for this blessing is what the verse, end of verse 19 says it is. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we can boldly approach God, be in personal relationship. Like Isaiah did not have that like we do. That's why he responded the way he did. Isaiah had the future promise of that coming. But, but we have, we have the finished once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Accomplished and applied. Verse 20 describes this way to God as a new way and a living way. That it is, isn't it? Uh, it is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. So what we have in Christ is new. It's a new covenant. We've been studying that for a few chapters now. And it is living because... He lives because our Savior lives. Um, as verse 20 continues to teach us, this superior high priest, Jesus Christ, and who was also our, our superior sacrifice, as he hung on that cross and as he uttered that it is finished, the veil in the temple was torn in two, making a way for not just the high priest, but for all who will trust in him for their salvation, all who will follow him to go through that veil into relationship with God. Uh, there is a beautiful metaphor here in verse 20. It says, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil. And what was that veil? His flesh. The veil was torn. And so there's this metaphor here of when that veil was torn, it was torn when his flesh was torn. When his body was broken for us, as we will celebrate in, in just a few moments. Um, verse 21 says that since we have a high priest over the house of God. Well, that's you. That's me. That's anyone who's received Jesus as your savior individually and corporately. We are the house of God. 
So, so since or, or based on all this doctrine, now here is the practical application. Here is our takeaway from all of this truth that we've learned together. Here's the demand. Verse 22, let us draw near. Now, how are we to draw near? Verse 19 said, with boldness. Boldness based on the blood of Christ. Well, we can have a powerful boldness if that's our basis. Uh, we can be that bold. Uh, that's what verse 22 continues to tell us. It says that the Christians boldly drawing near, it is only possible because our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies uh, with a pure water of the life transforming Word of God by the Holy Spirit of God, as Titus 3, 5, and 6 says, the, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And I, I think it's very important to realize that this is not passive, that this is a demand. It's an invitation. To experience what is being described here, um, it takes an active role on your part. It takes you applying the fact that, that you have this boldness in Jesus Christ. Um, without that, we would be like Isaiah. Uh, without an intentional application of all the doctrines that we have learned, we would be like Adam and Eve were hiding ourselves in the garden with some man-made, homemade, pointless covering of fig leaves. But we have a better covering, don't we? We have the blood of Christ. That's our better covering uh, from a superior Savior. And that better covering, it gives us a boldness to obey this demand to draw near. Let us draw near. In fact, we should run to this invitation to draw near. We got a second demand. Uh, verse 23 says, let us hold fast. And now this time the demand comes before the doctrine that is summarized. Here's the demand. Let us hold fast. This is the third time in the book of Hebrews that God has given us this demand. Uh, back in chapter 3, verse 6, said, Hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. Chapter 3, 14, it says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And now here in verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. In the Greek, uh, we have learned back there in chapter 3 that this hold fast idea is a nautical term, that of an anchor or, or a mooring. We're to hold fast. What are we to hold fast? The faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We're to hold fast our profession of faith, or um, we could say our confession of faith. The demand here, based on all the doctrine that we have learned over the past few chapters, is for you and I to hold fast and to do so without wavering, without swerving this way or that way. Hold fast to our receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're to look back to that day. We're to look back to that moment when we first heard and received Christ as our Savior. The moment we came to Christ. Whenever I've had the joy of being used of God to help lead someone to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, one thing I always tell them to do is to write down that date. On, you've got all these blank pages in the back of your Bible, sometimes in the front. And I tell them it is vitally important to do that. I wish somebody would have told me to do that. I don't have the exact date that I came to Christ. I know the day. I know the year. Um, but it's that important because... That way, when Satan comes, and he will, 
Maybe you've just lost some battle. You've yielded to temptation. And Satan comes to tell you uh, what a worthless Christian you are. And how fake you are. How undeserving of salvation you are. And he makes us doubt our salvation. You can flip open <laughs> to that page. And you can say, devil, look, this is when he grabbed me. Um, this is when I gave my life to the one who gave his life for me. So get out of here with that doubt. Uh, Christian, that's how you hold fast. I believe it's so essential that every individual that I've either had a part or that I've heard of here at Dublin, I got you right here. Um, Simon Ussery, September 15th, 2019. Lydia Ussery, same day, a couple hours later. Laney Fletcher, February 14th, 2020. Keith and Russ, March 29th, 2021, when we had our first weird communion. You remember that? We had to use these? We were at home, at home. I remember Natalie calling me that afternoon and saying, you know what? Keith entrusted Christ as Savior. I got to lead him because of communion. He said, Mom, how come I can't have that? And she said, well, it's for those who trusted in Jesus. Mom got to explain to him what that meant. And he gave his life to Christ. Kim Morgan, July 26, 2020. Riley Dallas, October 8th. Sign of Colville, like that one. Remember that day, March 22nd, 2021. Man, what, a, what an important thing it is that we hold fast. That's just one example of how we hold fast. What's the doctrine that it's based on? That's a bold thing to do when the devil comes. And tries to get you to doubt your salvation. It's a bold thing to go, no, I know. Get out of here. Well, we're to be this bold. Again, not in anything based on us. Based on the blood of Jesus Christ. The, the doctrine that supports our obedience to the, this demand. It's been laid out over six chapters. But here, it is summarized once again at the end of verse 23. How, why are we to hold fast our profession of faith? And to do so without even an ounce of wavering. Why? For faithful is he that promised. He's faithful, isn't he? I'm so glad that he is because sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm not faithful. Um, I'm so glad that the validity of my salvation, the genuineness, I don't know if that's a word, that the genuineness uh, of being, my being a born-again Christian, that it's not based on the strength of my faith but that it's based on the strength of the one in whom I put my faith. How strong is he? Infinitely, right? Omnipotent. How powerful is his blood based on the blood of Christ, as we learned in verse 19. For he is faithful that promised. You know, right in the middle of the last epistle, the last letter that God had Paul write to the church before he gave his life for Christ, before he was martyred, um, in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, we find this. This is an old hymn, uh, ancient early church hymn. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, it says, For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, sometimes I am, and I hate it. But if we are faithless, listen to this beautiful lyric. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny 
himself. Woo, that is solid right there. That is something that we can bank on, Christian. Hold fast because faithful is he that promised. We got one final demand in verses 24 to 25. Team up. And you're going to have a hard time finding those two words, no matter what version you have here. Um, and so I say team up because it's a summary of what are actually three demands that are all part of one in verses 24 to 25. It begins in verse 24. Let us consider one another. Consider means to fix your eyes on, focus your attention on. And who are we to consider? Other believers. We're to consider one another. Listen, one of the most spiritually healthy and counterculturally alarming, at least in this narcissistic, me first, selfie world, one of the most spiritually healthy and counterculturally alarming things that you can do as a Jesus follower is to focus your attention on the needs of others. That's what we're asked to do here. That's the demand here, to focus especially on other Jesus followers. Well, we're not to simply fix our eyes or focus our attention on others. That's like not in the way of just staring at them. That's a little creepy. There, there's a motivation here. There's a purpose here. What does it say? There's an action that should follow. We're to provoke them. Now, typically that word in the English and the Greek has a negative connotation. It means to stir up, to start something, uh, to stimulate them. Is your life a stimulation to others? I suppose it is one way or another, and that might not be a good thing. But do you, do you provoke, do you stimulate them as described here to love? And then what results from love? To good works? Dr. Jerry Vine said in his commentary on verse 24, you and I as Jesus followers, we are to be so loving that other people are challenged to be loving by our example. We are to be so faithful in working for the Lord that other Christians are challenged, that they're provoked, they're stimulated to also work for the Lord by our example, to consider one another, to love, and then what results from love, to good works. Now, there's a, a, two more, two more demands that are actually part of this first one. We're to consider each other in order to stimulate each other to love and good works by, according to what verse 25 says at the beginning, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, and then later by exhorting one another. So all of this considering and stimulating to love and to good works is to happen within one of the greatest gifts that God has given, one of the greatest means of grace that the blood of Jesus Christ has purchased for you and I, the local church, the community of faith, the body of Christ, the family of God. Um, that is where all this considering and loving and good works is supposed to happen. I've said it before, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. That is not God's design. And so if that's the practice uh, of any Christian, they are living in disobedience and rebellion against God, neglecting, they're neglecting this demand that's given here, as well as the doctrines that it's based on. Because you cannot fulfill the, the initial facets of this demand, um, fixing our eyes, focusing our attention on others to help them to love and, and to good works. You cannot do that if you're not assembling with the others that you are supposed to be stimulating to love and good works. That was a manner of some. That's what it says right here in the early church that God is writing to here. And it's the manner of some in our time. And God's word says it ought not be so. 
Uh, that's the negative side of this demand. There's a positive one that follows it. We are to be faithful in assembling ourselves together so that we can exhort each other, meaning we can encourage each other. How often? Well, y'all know I grew up independent, fundamental Baptist, right? And we had a little motto. We love mottos. Don't we, Tommy? Yeah, thumbs up. <laughs> we love mottos. We love little sayings. Um, we said, three to thrive. That's what they always tell us. They meant Sunday morning and Sunday school. That was a given. Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. You better be there for soul winning on Thursday, going door to door. And Monday or Tuesday or Friday, you'd have something else. And um, look, quite frankly, there's a lot of legalism in that. But I'm afraid that a lot of churches today are a whole lot closer to one and done than they are three to thrive. So how often? So we fulfill this demand? Can I just give you a principle that's it's actually specifically given about how we worship the Lord in financially giving? But I think it's applicable here. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a what? A cheerful. He loves a cheerful giver. Listen, that's how you should come. You want to answer that question? How often? How do I fulfill this demand that God's telling me here and not forsaken the assembly of ourselves together? Um, that's how you should come. Cheerfully, not reluctantly. Don't come under compulsion. <laughs> There's no worship involved in that. <clears throat> no. Um, don't serve others reluctantly, stimulating them to love and good works under compulsion. No, we should let the Holy Spirit communicate what this means about how often we should come and, and how we should come. We should assemble together and not forsake that because we want to, right? Because we need to. Because there is a demand here from God, from Christ who died for us and saved us. There's a demand here that we use the spiritual gifts that he has given us to stimulate each other, to love and good works. And there's a demand here that others use their spiritual gifts to stimulate you and me to love and good works because we need it, because we, we want to. How often? That should give you one indication. Here's another one at the end of, of verse 25. All the more as you see the day approaching. So here's some doctrine as well. The day approaching, that's been a theme here in the book of Hebrews since the very beginning. The first three verses, um, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Um, chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, said the foundation of the earth and the heavens, they shall perish as a vesture. You're going to fold them up one day and they shall be changed. And DFBC, I think that day's coming, and, and soon, I believe. So the life of a Christian, the life of a follower of Jesus, it's one of looking back to Christ's first coming when he provided for our salvation. That's been the theme of about five, six chapters now. When he provided for our salvation by dying on the cross and rising from that empty tomb three days later. But the life of a Christian is also one of looking for his second coming to that day approaching, as it's described here. And realizing that that day is 
approaching. It gives an urgency um, for us obeying all of these demands. Draw near. Hold fast. Team up. Should fuel our, our fervent obedience to what God is asking of us here in verses 19 to 25. That day's approaching. We need to keep it ever before us. It's how we close our confession of faith in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come. He will come to judge the living and the dead. The end, it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in life everlasting. Amen. Amen? Do you believe in life everlasting and the resurrection of the body? That day is approaching. And so in just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion and as we celebrate our union with Christ through faith and, and honestly, our union with each other. That's why we call it communion. <laughs> our union with each other as brothers and sisters of Christ through faith in Jesus. Here, assembled together, even in communion, we're pointed to that. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, a passage we'll go through as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It ends this way. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Even what we're going to do here in a moment points to that day approaching. And so I'm going to ask um, Tommy to come and our, our pianist. And we need to take a moment um, to respond to God's word in preparation for our participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, there is not a single person here in this entire room who is worthy to worship how we're about to in, in a moment. Um, but if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, can I just encourage you to boldly participate with joy in all that God is for us in Jesus Christ anyway? I'm not worthy. You're not worthy. But you and I, we are made. <laughs> we are made worthy by God's grace through faith in Jesus, by the death and resurrection of Christ for us. That is the doctrine that he bases all these demands for us here on. Uh, draw near. Hold fast, team up. So as we prepare, we're going to sing here in a moment, and we prepare to celebrate uh, all of the grace that God's given to us in Jesus. I invite you as we're singing, do business with God. As we're singing, pray. Uh, ask him, Lord, help me to continually draw near to you. God, in the days ahead, when fear comes, when temptation comes, help me to hold fast. Father, thank you uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thank you for all those in the pew around me. My, thank you for my church family. God, I pray that you would help me to stimulate them to love and good works. And I pray that you would use them in my life to do the same.